Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, a reasonable reason for the EIS transition troubles on the Fatara scorecard. The ground shifted from underneath EIS right as it was picking up speed. And now government workers are using solutions that EIS either doesn't provide or doesn't provide as part of their core service. A big endorsement for the Pentagon's newest technology office. In my opinion, you're going to do better in trying to align those three organizations to really go after the toughest challenges throughout the department. And the reality of EO compliance at the agency level. We don't have the money, the people, the time to comply with the fullness of the executive order this year, next year, even in the next several years. It's Tuesday, February 1st, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. Six concepts are among the finalists for the Air Force's Spark Tank 2022. The vice chiefs of staff of the Air Force and Space Force chose projects that range from blood delivery by drone to custom oxygen masks for fighter pilots. The Air Force will announce the winners at the Air Force Association's Aerospace Warfare Symposium at the beginning of March. The Army will build 3D printing provisions into contracts over the next five to seven years. The head of Army Materiel Command, General Edward Daly, says his command can already mirror objects and print them on 3D printers. Daly says he expects to move money and projects from research to production within that time frame. You can read more about these and lots of other stories at fedscoop.com. IT Mod Week is less than a month away now. It's coming February 28th through March 4th. More than 100 events will happen around D.C. with lots of government and industry speakers. Some events already starting to fill the calendar. You can find a link to learn more in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Two of the most important landmarks in federal IT are also markers for the contractors that want to sell to the government. Larry Allen is president of Allen Federal Business Partners and writing in his Week Ahead newsletter this week about the Fatara scorecard and the White House's zero trust strategy. Larry, welcome. Thanks for coming on as always. Before we turn the recorder on, you said there was something about the Fatara scorecard that really caught your attention. What is it and why is it such a big deal? Welcome, Larry. Thank you, Francis. The big issue about the Fatara report card is the almost across the board failing grades agencies got for their transformation to GSA's EIS telecommunications contract. You see the progress that uh, agencies made in areas like data center consolidation, and even in some cases, IT modernization but not in EIS, Francis. And that's what really stood out. Um, There were a couple agencies that did okay. USAID got an A on the EIS transition. Uh, The National Science Foundation, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, the uh, Treasury Department all got A's. Uh, The Labor Department got a B. There was a C at HHS, and there was a C at the Department of Veterans Affairs. Everybody else got D's or F's. What's so hard about this, Larry? We've been transitioning to EIS for how many years now? Well, Francis, I think it's really interesting because if you look at IT modernization writ large, that's something that agencies want to do. EIS is IT modernization on the telecommunications front, and yet a lot of agencies seem to be very resistant to 
transforming over. Uh, many agencies, in fact, don't even really want to lift and shift their capability to the new contract, uh, which they shouldn't do. They should be taking advantage of the new security functionality and the new features that EIS has to offer. But I think there are a couple of reasons why agencies are doing that, Francis. One is they're very content with the telecommunications solutions they have now. You don't need to look any further than the numbers from Bloomberg government that showed that in FY21, total spending on networks, EIS's predecessor contract, was almost the same as total spending on EIS. That's a telling uh, fact. It says that agencies and contractors continue to want to do business through the vehicle that they know how, the one that they're comfortable with, even as other agencies transition. But the major issue is right as the EIS contract went online, the pandemic hit. And as soon as the pandemic hit, federal workers went to work remotely, many working from home. Simply put, how the government uses telecommunications solutions has changed dramatically over the last two years. You don't really need a phone at your desk if you're never at your desk. Uh, in fact, agencies do the most, most of their communicating both internally and externally using software-based communications platforms like Zoom or Google uh, Meets or MS Teams, things of that nature. Those are all platforms that give you telecommunications and virtual meeting functionality but they're not really widely available if they're available at all on EIS. So the, the, the ground shifted from underneath EIS right as it was picking up speed. And now government workers are using solutions that EIS either doesn't provide or doesn't provide as part of their core service. Another example of that would be mobile solutions. Agencies do get some of their mobile solutions from EIS, Francis, but it's not the main way they get mobile telecommunication solutions. Yet, if workers are working off-site, they're working at home, they're more likely to be using that mobile phone than they are something at a desk. So I think those are two big reasons why we're seeing agencies really moving slowly to transition. So it sounds to me like what you're saying is this transition and uh, and these failing grades, these slow grades are a result of issues with the EIS contract, not so much issues with the way that agencies have decided to transition off of it. Well, I think there's a point in that. EIS was set up to provide telecommunication solutions that were market-driven at a certain point in time. The market has changed, whether you're federal or in the commercial market. How federal agencies buy their telecommunication solutions and what telecommunications solutions they provide has definitely changed. I think that calls into question uh, just how effective we can expect EIS to be overall. Because Francis, even if federal workers go back to work a lot over the next year, we all kind of hope that they, that will happen. They're not going to fundamentally change how they're communicating now. These software-based platforms like MS Teams and Zoom, they're now an embedded part 
of how agencies conduct business. They're an easy way for them to talk, not just to each other, but to contractors. They can do more contractor discussions on virtual platforms than they can by having people come into their office. So I think we're gonna continue to see this. It's not, the pandemic may have kicked off the change in how work happens, but it's not going to necessarily revert back to the way it was just because the pandemic may uh, no longer be with us or may no longer be front page news. What should vendors do or what should GSA do to make EIS fit the needs of agencies as they sit today better? Well, that's a big question, Francis. And to answer that, you have to kind of look in GSA's standpoint, EIS is a good vehicle, it's a big vehicle, but it competes with other GSA vehicles. Uh, the schedules with Alliant, some of the other GWACs they have. So if, I, if GSA had free reign, I would say the most obvious thing would be to ramp up and add new mobile telecommunication features to EIS, and also to promote the availability of these software-based platforms if they are indeed already part of the contract. I think those two things, particularly the having a more robust soup to nuts mobile solution on EIS is really what would drive additional business. Uh, when you have people who are not uh, in an office or not in an office very much, ripping out and replacing routers with new digital technology and a whole host of features, that's not really going to uh, sell uh, the average program manager or senior executive these days. It's going to be, how do we move to provide the solutions that workers need in today's reality? A uh, lot to chew on there. Larry Allen, president of Allen Federal Business Partners. Thanks for coming on today. Francis, thank you very much. You can find a link to Larry's newsletter in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Today's opening day for the Defense Department's new Office of the Chief Digital and Artificial Intelligence Officer. That office will oversee some of the Pentagon's most important tech operations. Lieutenant General Jack Shanahan, U.S. Air Force retired, is former director of the Jake and former leader of Project Maven. General, welcome. It's good to talk to you again. What's your sense of what the structure will look like and how it'll work with the new CDAO office? It's opening today. Welcome, General. Well, good morning, Francis, and uh, really enjoy uh, being with you again. Uh, this is this is a big, a big important step. I, I call this the natural evolution of three different organizations. Of course, the Jake uh, that uh, I was the leader of until my retirement, in June of two two thousand and twenty. The chief data officer for the Department of Defense and the Defense Digital Service. So that will all come together under the form of one person that will be a direct report to the Deputy Secretary of Defense. So to me, this is, if you look at all the work that was done just to really get those three organizations up and running, this is now, to me, the next logical step to do better at aligning those activities and synchronizing those activities throughout the Department of Defense. Because if you look at all three of those, they're, they're what I say is inextricably intertwined. I mean, they're all along, they all help each other out. They're all sort of trying to, trying to go towards the same ultimate objectives for the Department of Defense, which is this, this step towards going from a hardware-centric Department of Defense to a digital age, software-centric, you know, more like a commercial software industry. 
You you said it will be uh the, will be better for the organization to be able to sync all those things. How so? What will this person? What will this office be able to do to coordinate those three offices that they weren't able to do uh, among themselves to coordinate drive that work forward, sir? So they're doing the, they're doing all important projects. But when you find any AI project, when you look at trying to do anything in AI in the Department of Defense, where does it start? It starts with data. So you have to have the chief data officer and the Jake sort of in bed with each other. And then the Defense Digital Service, which is known for having some of the the country's best talent coming in the door, young, eager, enthusiastic, working on some of the the more pressing problems related to software and cybersecurity that the department has, uh, and some of the combatant command challenges that, that they've asked for help on. But those three things are not always necessarily synchronized. So whatever the Defense Digital Service is working on may or may not be aligned with what the Jake is working on, and the Chief Data Officer has a tie into both those organizations. So by putting them together and then having one person report to the Deputy Secretary of Defense, you're now going to do better. In my opinion, you're going to do better in trying to align those three organizations to really go after the toughest challenges throughout the department. Uh, And we spent the first year and a half when I was at the Jake really working with the services. Now it's time to to focus as much or even more on the combatant commands on one of the big problems that they need tackled by this new organization. The acting director of DDS, Katie Olson, was on the program last week, General, and she was talking about uh, a way that they helped respond to the Log4J incident uh, a couple of weeks ago. And it struck me after that conversation the DDS has really matured and really grown, not just in capability, but in stature and in view inside the building. And I wonder if that if this is the next step in that, where this is kind of an endorsement of DDS, we're elevating it to or thinking about it in kind of the same level as the Jake and the CDO office. And these three offices are kind of peers and equally important pieces of the way that the agency looks at data and looks at technology and so on. Am I reading that right, do you think? You're reading it exactly right, Francis. The idea of DDS starting as you know an insurgency, right? Led by, led by Chris Lynch and Chris being sort of this this classic disruptor uh, that comes in and and really just changes the way the department does business and and going after some of those some of those cybersecurity challenges and just big big thorny software problems. This now, just like with the J, just like with with CDO takes the important step of moving beyond disruption to the diffusion of innovation across the entire department, right? We've focused for the last few years across the department on individual projects, individual programs, relatively small scale, sometimes almost always very successful, led by these disruptive personalities in many cases. It's now hard to scale that. So how do you get those disruptive organizations to then uh, be able to move at scale and, of course, at the necessary speed across the entire Department of Defense? One way to do that is to put it all together. Now, I, I, yeah, this is a question I would expect you to ask. So I'll just maybe maybe uh, <laughs> beat, you to, beat you to it is, what are, what are the potential you know problems here? Well, I think the big one is any loss in momentum would be disastrous for the Department of Defense. What this cannot be seen is a typical bureaucratic reorganization that might take a year to sort of settle out. This and, and 
believe me, I, I know uh, the people that are that are running the transition, Jim Mitre and Lindsay Shepard, they're doing everything possible not to lose any momentum whatsoever. This has to be seen as, as moving quickly, put the right person at, in charge of the organization and show results quickly. Right? There are a lot of people will be looking at this saying, well, what are you doing? What is this new organization other than uh, a new box on an organization chart? That's not the intent here. The, the intent here is to make a difference and to make a difference quickly. Can't, can't be any loss of momentum. All right. For amateurs like me, define some terms for me, please, General. Uh, my colleague Jackson Barnett writes, the uh, new office will reach initial operational capability February 1st. Today, the CDAO is expected to reach full operational capability by June 2022. What's the difference? Well, it's, sort of, it's interesting you say that because in the Jake, we had these very discussions. How do we define IOC and FOC? We, we basically threw those out the window. So there were only two things that happened. One, we stood up. And then we were operating and starting to deliver product. Now, initial operating and final operating capability, you can define those in a couple of different ways. The way I would look at this is on February 1st, uh, the day that, that this is, is airing, there will be this organization. The CDAO will be, will be up and running. It will still be under sort of some, some turbulence as it brings these three different organizations together. Uh, I don't believe they've officially hired somebody into this new position yet, so somebody will serve as acting. But the intent is, I think what it says is, is by the summertime, it'll be operating at full speed. So sometime between February 1st and the summer, it will be you know sort of humming, humming along. But uh, the initial part of this is, it, as of February 1st, it will be the CDAO, and that's what it'll be referred to. And then you've got to get make sure you have the right people, you need the resources, you need to get Congress on board with everything you're trying to do, and so on. All the things that come with the uh, normal bureaucracy in the Pentagon have to have to start taking place. But the intent is move quickly, get it going on, on February 1st, and then this idea of full operation capability is you, you're out there delivering product uh, by summertime. Does that sound like a makeable deadline to you, Jack? I say, I'll say uh, it is a very aggressive deadline, but it's a necessary deadline. This should give a sense of urgency to everybody involved in those three organizations. Uh, there's no time to waste. We can't afford to fall behind here. General Shanahan, it's great to have you back on the program. Thanks for joining me today. Hey, Francis, thank you very much. Uh, always enjoy talking with you. Thanks. You can read more about the new office in the Pentagon in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. Coming on Wednesday's show, the director of the National Science Foundation, Seth Raman Panchanathan, is here. He has a long innovation agenda at NSF, and he'll tell you about it tomorrow. That Daily Scoop podcast debuts Wednesday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. The chief information officer at the Energy Department has several big tasks to continue building her agency's IT investments. Ann Duncan has experience doing that in a government environment from her time as CIO at the Environmental Protection Agency. On the newest episode of the Let's Talk About IT podcast, she tells my colleague Billy Mitchell, serving on the transition team whetted her appetite to come back to the federal government. I think that once you get the bug to serve, uh, it's sort of hard to, to step away from that. And I can't think of a better place to serve than the federal government. The opportunities to impact uh, the country and the world are just huge. If you look at EPA, you know, water and air really weren't very good at, at national boundaries. And if you look at DOE's portfolio, um, you know, we work on everything from nuclear nonproliferation 
to basic science and everything in between, uh, including keeping power on, power on, lights on across the country. Um, and all those things uh, have, have national and international implications. So it's, it's just a great opportunity to, to really have a huge impact that I couldn't have in the private sector or in local government. Well, once again, welcome back. And let's talk about your priorities now for 2022 for the Department of Energy's IT. What are your major focuses over the next 11 months? Yeah, so, you know, it, it seems like I just got back uh, yesterday, but it was, in fact, uh, I guess, May. Um, so we're, we're at uh, seven, seven months, almost eight months now. Um, and uh, there's, a, there's a lot going on in DOE. As you know, DOE is really highly federated. Uh, the, the labs have a really unique relationship with DOE. Um, so, you know, when I look at 2022, I think about, uh, first of all, uh, we can't ignore cybersecurity, the executive order, um, the continuing litany of attacks uh, and of vulnerabilities, right? We're, we're working on, on log J4. Um, you know, I started right after the Colonial Pipeline issue. Um, you know, there's just all sorts of challenges in the security standpoint. So that's, that's obviously a, a top issue. Um, that we're going to be focusing on uh, during the year. Um, but we also have, we have internal um, delivery responsibilities, right? We have to, to keep uh, IT uh, functioning within DOE for a good part of DOE, that that's, that's my job to do that. Um, so we'll be looking at that and looking at how to do that effectively and efficiently. Um, we're also really focused on how do we make sure that not only DOE, but our partners in the federal government and across the space uh, and industry really know what DOE does. So for example, we completed a 5G catalog to really look at what 5G is happening across DOE. So we could share that across DOE and across federal enterprise. We're gonna continue our leadership in, uh, in 5G within, within DOE and looking at, at uh, standards and, and how we're gonna work with our partners in the government. And we're also gonna look at expanding that to really look at other capabilities that we create within DOE and how do we make sure that, that our whole enterprise understands what capabilities we have and we can bring to the party. Um, I also have some things I've tried to do across the government, which are really exciting. That's the great thing about coming back for a second time as a CIO. You know how it works uh, and, and you know how to get things done a little bit better. I was invited immediately into the Innovation Committee as co-chair um, with Ron Betrois and now Ron has left government. So now I'm the co-chair with somebody else I've got to find. Um, but, you know, I have the opportunity to lead the innovation committee, the opportunity to be part of the CIO council leadership, and really the opportunity to sort of drive the next uh, phase of our innovation journey in the federal government, which to me is scaling that innovation. We have, we have one of the, you asked me what's changed, right? One of the things that's changed is when I first came into government, we were really trying to figure out how to be agile, how to be innovative, how to do digital transformation. And we figured that out, but we haven't figured out how to scale that. Uh, and so that's something I really want to work on both inside DOE and to help provide tools across the government in terms of a playbook we're putting together. So we're going to try and help all of government understand how to scale those innovation and transformation activities across the government. So those are those are a few of the things. Obviously, there's just a ton of stuff going on. We've also got the infrastructure bill money that's coming into DOE that we're going to be uh, working on with our colleagues uh, across the mission space in DOE. So lots of exciting stuff that we're looking forward to. A, a very busy 2022. 
That's a really good point. And I think that that point on scale is one that we've really seen echoed across this administration, at least in this past year. And I'd be curious, given your experience under the Obama administration, how you might characterize and compare IT under this Biden administration this last year to your time uh, in your last in, in federal government. Yeah, this administration really has a, has a real focus on technology. And if you look just at the transition, uh, there was a real focus on technology, making sure we got technologists in early, making sure we got people in the right places to really enable uh, people to start moving fast. Uh, we got a, got a federal CIO really quickly. Um, you know, the CIO Council has, it has been um, really strong in terms of transitioning from the last administration, this one, without really losing a beat. Um, so I think there's, there's a great focus on um, uh, 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 innovation, but I also think that it's sort of been uh, almost smothered by the focus on security, not because uh, there's anything wrong with that. Uh, we've had to focus on security. There have been so many big security challenges um, and such a focus that we need to have on security, um, but it really takes a lot of the air out of the room. And so uh, we're trying at the CIO Council level at the, at the uh, department and agency CIO level to get more focus on innovation as well and spend the time thinking about how we're gonna get better at what we do in addition to being more secure. That's great. So speaking of security, it's almost been a year and it came around the same time you joined or rejoined government that the uh, signing of the cybersecurity EO 14028. Uh, what have been the big takeaways on your side. You mentioned there's a lot of work with Log4j and some of the colonial pipeline things. And obviously zero trust is a big thing that's moving across government, but how has your agency had to respond in implementing that cyber EO? Well, you know, the challenge with the cyber EO is, is that there's a lot there. And, and frankly, um, there's very little in the cyber EO that wasn't on anyone's radar already. Um, but we've done is looked at and said, we need to, to focus across the government. We need to track this. You know, I'm actually... Um, while, while on the one hand, CyberEO is, is asking us to do a lot, um, my experience in local government has shown me the value of having other people who care. Uh, it, it's much easier for me to drive this agenda forward across DOE when I've got uh, you know, the White House and National Security Council and CISA and DHS uh, you know, all caring about uh, the fact that we need to be more secure. Um, so the CyberEO really does help put some teeth into what we're trying to do. Uh, but you know, zero trust, multi-factor authentication, supply chain risk management, probably some of the biggest things that, that really are coming out in focus areas from, from the uh, EO. And, you know, and the bottom line is, is we have to look at all that and then we have to decide what our greatest risks are and we're going to attack those greatest risks because we can't, we don't have the money, the people, the time to comply with the fullness of the executive order this year, next year, or even in the next several years. Um, there's a tremendous amount there. Uh, the amount of money that we asked for wasn't enough to do it. The amount of money we got or hope to get when we get a budget um, is even less. Um, so really, we just have to very, very focused on across the enterprise, what are our highest risks? And, we, and you know, that authority to make those decisions is delegated across DOE because we want folks close to the problem to assess their risks locally and make those decisions because different parts of the enterprise are going to have different decisions to make because there's a huge difference between NNSA and say Lawrence Berkeley Lab, right? Yeah. So, so you need to make sure that, that we can make good decisions that meet the needs of those uh, parts of the organization. And so those are the big things is how do we implement zero trust? How do we implement MFA? How do we increase our supply chain, uh, reduce our supply chain risk? How do we support 
um, the PMAs in, in those areas as well, or part, the part marketing administrations, um, power marketing administrations, excuse me. And how do we do all that in the way that's most effective with the funds we have? So, Anne, let's close it out with one final question on another executive order that came out at the end of 2021 on customer experience. I know that DOE is a little different in that it doesn't really face and serve many citizens, but tell me how, if at all, you are working to implement that EO at the Department of Energy. So, you know, DOE is interesting because we do not deliver a whole lot of customer-facing IT services uh, to the public, you know, so... Uh, we will certainly be looking at the EO and, and what we can learn from the EO, um, not only to deliver in the few places we actually put a web service out for the public, but also lessons learned to help us with the services we provide internally for our staff. Um, but the EO itself is not going to be um, deeply impactful at DOE uh, because we simply, you know, we deliver very important services to the public. We keep the power grid up and running. Um, and I think people really appreciate that. Um, however, uh, that that's that doesn't mean that people are logging onto a service because that does not we don't directly sell power to the public we sell power to other organizations so um, you know we're not going to see a lot of direct impact from that EO in what we do but we are certainly going to use this as an opportunity to learn some lessons and to apply those to our internal services. And Duncan, the Chief Information Officer at the Energy Department on the new episode of Billy Mitchell's Let's Talk About IT podcast. You can listen to the whole episode and subscribe to that podcast in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the show on your platform of choice, thanks for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together every day and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. Wednesday on the Daily Scoop podcast, the director of the National Science Foundation. That show debuts tomorrow afternoon. Till then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. 